Section three of the Lion's Brood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lion's Brood by Duffield Osborne. Section three. Parting. The ensuing days were pregnant with rumour and action. The waves of terror and despair that lashed over the city, as blow after blow fell, had now receded. The white banner, that was always lowered at the approach of an enemy, still spread its undulating folds above Janiculum. The crops and fruit-trees and vines smiled upon the hillsides. The flocks and herds browsed peacefully along the Campagna, with never a Numidian pillager to disturb their serenity and amid all there was no rumour of allied gates opened to receive the invader no welcome from the italians whom he had striven to conciliate courage returned and with courage firmness and with firmness confidence to endure and dare and do so long as invaders presumed to set foot upon the heritage of rome how far this new confidence was born of the news that the carthaginian was turning aside to the west through Umbria and Picenum, how far by the rumour that Spoletum had closed her gates and repulsed his vanguard, or how far by wrath at the tales of ravage and the numberless murders of Roman citizens that marked his line of march, it would be difficult to apportion. However these, the city was now seething with energetic preparation. The Senate sat daily and into each night. No word of peace was uttered. All was war and revenge. Quintus Fabius Maximus was elected pro-dictator by a vote of the Comitia. Not dictator, because that could only be done through appointment by the surviving consul, then absent in Gaul, or none knew where. By the same power, and in order to appease the commons irritated by criticisms, of flaminius marcus minucius rufus was elected master of the horse nor were the gods neglected their stimulating influence was invoked by the dictator to inspire the people with confidence while he soothed them with the intimation that flaminius had failed rather through over-courage and neglect of divine things than through mere plebeian temerity and ignorance fabius took care to impress it upon all that he himself would take full warning from the lesson he moved that the sibylline books should be consulted and the senate promptly acted upon the motion these directed that a holy spring be proclaimed forthwith that every animal fit for sacrifice and born between the calends of march and may throughout all italy should be offered to jupiter Votive games were decided upon, couches were set by the judges, whereon the twelve gods should feast in splendour, temples were vowed, to Venus Erisina, by the dictator himself, to Mens, by Titus Otacilius, the praetor. But withal, and as Fabius put it, that the immortal gods should not be overburdened with the petty affairs of mortals, every care that human prudence and warcraft could suggest was taken walls and towers were strengthened and bridges were broken down the inhabitants of open towns were driven into places of security 
and their houses and crops destroyed. Amid all, the rumour came that Servilius was hastening back from Gaul, then that he was close at hand, and finally Fabius set out to meet him, sending orders in advance that the consul should come without lictors, so that the dignity of the dictatorship might stand high before the people. And when Servilius had come, in all respects as commanded, then he, the consul, after first delivering up his legions, which he had left in Ariminum, was ordered to Ostia, and the fleet to keep watch and ward over the Italian coast, and to protect the corn-ships. So all the armies of the Republic went to the pro-dictator, together with the authority to raise such more as he should consider needful. Two new legions in the place of those dead on the shores of Trasimenus, and some thousands of poorer citizens from the tribes, to man the Cincoremes of Servilius and the walls of Rome. Amid these days of bustle and preparation, Sergius had found little difficulty in keeping his footsteps from Marcia's threshold. After the first grief of the conviction that she did not love him, pride came to his rescue. Should he, the head of the noblest house of the noble Sergian gens, should he abase himself and submit to scornful words even from a daughter of Torquatus? Or yet should he, as a man, desire to bear the torch before an unwilling bride? These were simple questions, and there was but one word that could answer them. So Sergius struggled to put Marcia from his heart, until he flattered himself that the difficult task had at last been accomplished. During this internal struggle there came also to help him word that he had been named of one of the military tribunes in the new fourth legion, and this wound now being almost well, he threw himself headlong into the work of the levy, and of exercising his men, striving to bring them to such a degree of efficiency as might win honour for himself and advantage to the Republic. Now and again twinges of the old heart-pain would rack him, but he obstinately attributed all depression and melancholy to the inferior quality, both physically and socially, of many of the new levies, and to his misgivings as to the account they would render of themselves when confronted by the veterans of Hannibal. At last the day of marching arrived, and with it the greatest struggle of all. Suddenly a suspicion awoke within him, whispering that the task he had set for himself was but poorly done, that the image of Marcia still smiled unbanished above the altar of his heart, and with all his pride and strength this suspicion of his weakness was, oddly enough, a source of positive exultation. Caius had been with him through much of his work, for Caius served in the same legion. It was evident, however, that the young man had received strict orders on one subject, for, in all their talks, the name of Marcia never passed his lips. This was unlike Caius, who was thought by many to be given to overmuch speaking, and for that reason it irritated Sergius the more, who would sooner have cut away his hand than questioned his friend concerning his sister. Thus the two men, illogically but humanly enough, continued to grow apart until, with never a thought but of friendliness, their intercourse became limited, through sheer embarrassment, to the commonplaces of fellow-soldiers who held light acquaintance with each other's names and faces. As the hour drew near, the city bubbled with excitement, and the altars of the gods reeked with unnumbered victims. 
especially invoked were caster fortune liberty and hope but above all the mighty trinity of the capital lest the pang of so great a parting with men who were about to encounter such grave dangers might sap the courage of those remaining and thence that of the new levies the dictator had wisely decreed that the army should assemble at tiber so it happened that there was none to go now save himself and a small escort of cavalry five termi at the head of which was sergius with these went rome's last hope the cast behind which lay only ruin but for the averting favour of the gods at midday the facies would be carried forth and it lacked but an hour of the time sergius had prepared everything his men were ready to mount at the blast of the trumpet and his household was set in order against the absence of its master he was standing within the viminal gate while an attendant held his horse close by and a little apart from the crowds of weeping women who surrounded the soldiers of the dictator's escort suddenly he felt someone pluck him by the cloak and turned quickly to see a young woman in the single tunic of a slave her dress however was of finer texture than that worn by most of her class and seemed to bespeak a rich mistress and especial favour she stood with her finger to her lips her great eyes with the importance of her mission my mistress the lady marcia orders that you come and bid her farewell she whispered hurriedly then she darted away among the crowd before the young tribune could make answer to an invitation so oddly worded his first impulse was to show the lady marcia that he was not to be dismissed and sent for much less ordered back at the caprice of a girl his next was to humour the whim of a child and his third was to obey humbly and thankfully without a thought but of marcia's beauty and his own good fortune a word to his slave and another to his horse whereat the former loosed the bridle and the latter knelt for his master then came a wild gallop across the crest of the viminal hill through the ill-omened street where the wicked tullia had driven over her father's corpse into the forum and out up the new way to the house of Torquatus. throwing his rein to the porter sergius entered the court of the atrium vacant and resounding to the hurried tread of his cotherni pausing for a moment and hesitating to penetrate farther into the house he became aware that the porter had followed him like most of his class he was a man considerably past middle life and thus considered suited to the comparative ease and responsibility of his position with a freedom and garrulity born of long service he began it was a word i was commanded to deliver to the most noble sergius and i doubt not it would have been well and truly delivered but for his springing from his horse so quickly and rushing past me it is possible that i might have come to him sooner had he not left me to take care of the animal and it needed time to summon the groom whose duty such work is therefore by hercules man give me the message do you think i can listen all day to your gabbling cried the soldier furious with impatience a faint laugh seemed to come from somewhere beyond the hallway i was about to say most noble lord pursued the porter hardly ruffled by the outburst and i trust you will pardon me if i dallied over much but sergius raised his hand then thinking better of the blow he seized the man by the throat perhaps i can shake the words out like dice from a box 
"'Now for the Venus cast!' he cried, suiting the action to the speech. "'Are you making trial of your strength, that you may break more readily into Carthaginian houses? Remember it is soldiers with whom you are to contend.' Sergius turned quickly to see Marcia herself standing at the entrance to the hall. In her eyes, on her lips, was malicious laughter, but a little red spot on either cheek seemed to tell of some stronger feeling behind. He had released the porter so quickly that the latter staggered back almost into the fountain, and Marcia smiled. "'I think I have been taking a great deal of trouble for the sake of a very discourteous person,' she said. "'I sent Minusia to tell a certain soldier that I am willing to bid him farewell, despite his unworthiness.' and he comes and nearly strangles poor old Rhetus for trying to say that I was awaiting him in the peristyle. Rhetus's attempt was not very successful, and my time was short, said Sergius, growing alternately red and pale. And so you thought to hasten his speech by closing his throat? Oh, you are a wise man, a very logical man. They should have made you dictator, so that you could save Italy by surrendering Rome. "'Is it to say such things that you sent for me?' asked Sergius, after a pause during which he struggled against embarrassment and wrath. "'Surely not, for how could I know that you were going to behave so outrageously? "'If you will follow me, we will go into the peristyle.' She turned back through the passage, and Sergius followed, issuing a moment later into a large, cloister-like court, open in the middle, and decorated with flowers and shrubs. Four rows of columns, half plain, half fluted, supported the shed roof that protected the frescoes. These covered three of the walls. On the back was a garden scene, so painted as to seem like a continuation of the court itself into the far distance. On the right was the combat between Aeneas and Turnus, and on the left a representation of the first Torquatus, despoiling the slain Gaul of the trophy from which the family took its name. "'And now I will tell you why I sent.' She had seated herself in a marble chair with wolf-heads carved on the arms, and her face had grown grave and thoughtful. "'I was to tell you a dream, a dream of you that I had last night.' Her cheek flushed, and Sergius's eyes sparkled. "'You dreamt of me?' he said in a low voice. He half raised his arms and came nearer, but she held up one hand in in the old imperious manner if you please i have not sent for you that you should grow presumptuous because i was unmaidenly enough to dream of so badly behaved a person as yourself it-it was because it-i thought you should know so that the omen might be expiated sergius had halted and was standing still his lip curled slightly i dreamt she went on after a pause that there was a wide plain with mountains about it and a river running through and it was all heaped up with dead men thousands upon thousands stripped of arms and clothing and the air was grey with vultures and the wolves and foxes were calling to each other back among the hills and i was very sad and walked daintily so that my sandals and gown might not be splashed with the blood that curdled in pools all about. Suddenly I came to a heap of slain, whereon you were lying, with a long javelin through your body. So I screamed and awoke. 
"'Surely, then, you felt sorrow,' cried Sergius, who had followed the narrative with deep interest, but who seemed to consider nothing of it save the concern she had shown at his death. "'Ah—ah—' she began, and then, as if angry with herself at the betrayal of feeling and of her embarrassment, she burst out, "'I did not send, foolish one, that you should consider me. Look rather to yourself.' But Sergius was full of the joy of his own thoughts. That I shall do, my Marcia, by setting my mind upon things that are better than myself, the Republic, you. Ah, but the omen? I shall put it aside together with the other, that you have called me back from the march, and I shall consider both well expiated by the knowledge that I am not as nothing to you. Her face grew pale, and she half rose from the chair. Truly, I did not think about calling you back. It is terrible, all this, and it is my doing. Then, if you wish, I shall lay it up against you, cried he gaily, unless you promise to be Kaya in my house. You are unfair to press me, and by such means. But it must be now, exclaimed the young man, springing forward and trying to catch her in his arms. "'Do you not see? I must leave you at once. Shall it be without a promise?' The blush had turned again to little anger spots as she evaded him. "'Very well,' she said slowly. "'I will be Caia, where thou art Caius.' Sergius's face shone with exultation, and his lips parted. "'I will be Caia,' she resumed, "'upon the day when Orcus sends back the dead from Asheron. His expression of joy faded, and indignation took its place. Surely this was carrying light speech too far, and at such a time. Suddenly he realised that the dictator might already have ridden on, and disgrace have fallen upon a Sergius at the very beginning of the campaign. "'So be it. I accept that omen, with the others,' he cried sternly, and, turning, strode out through the atrium bounded upon his horse, and dashed headlong down the street, before Marcia was fairly aware that he had gone from her presence. End of section 3